Hello everyone and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast, where we chat everything and anything related to the world of music and occasionally focus on topics a little bit unrelated. My name is Scott Kerry, I am a drummer turned comedy singer-songwriter and apparently now a podcaster. You're going to hear me chat to many different people, but more often than not, it will be fellow musicians having conversations about their careers and lives within, arguably, the greatest art form in the world. And you get this for free each and every week on scottcowie.com, on Stitcher Radio, and now on iTunes. So please rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, let them know what's going on over here. But for now, enjoy the show. Guest this week on the podcast, drumming sensation, Joey Heredia. Um, big thanks to Joey for helping me out in Los Angeles for all the time that I was there, giving me a load of drum kits, showing me around his house where we conducted the interview. Um, learned a good bit from Joey, great drumming technique. This is a man that knows his stuff and this podcast definitely signifies that. Uh, huge thanks to Tanya O'Callaghan, a great bass player who showed me, um, introduced me to Joey and set up this interview. We're going to get right down to it. Tanya did the interview with me. It's going to be a good one. I am back on the Talk Music Podcast and I am in the home of drumming sensation, Joey Heredia. How are you, sir? Never had it better. <laughs> <laughs> also joining us is, is international producer slash idiot from Ireland, Tanya Callahan. Say hello, Tanya. Privileged to be here. Um, Joey is a little bit nervous because he can't understand a word that I'm saying, but we've brought along Tanya and he can't understand. An interpreter. Yes. And we- I'm going to do interpretive dance. Because it seems, that, it, it seems that the Irish approach is a, a, a little bit more understandable than really? Scottish. Yeah. So between, For me. We'll, we'll get through it somehow. We're in your house. This is the coolest house I have ever seen in my life. Oh, genuinely. you're kidding. Um, no, because do you want to know why? Because as you know, I play the drums a little bit as well, and there's more drums um, than than I've ever seen. It's it's genuinely better kitted out than a lot of the drum stores in my country, uh, which is amazing. So, how many drum kits do you think that you own? Do you know you haven't? Do I think? Uh, well, in the house, there's always six of them set up, right? And they never leave the house. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, the room that we're in, that's a, a Latin kit, obviously. It's for it's for Cuban style stuff because of where the what kind of bells I'm using and where mm-hmm. they're set up. And uh, instead of having a set of timbales to my left, like most drummers do, I I kind of evolved over the years and I I put one on the right with with a uh, on the right of a tom, mm-hmm. uh, and the first tom on my right, acting as a floor, is an actual twelve. So that kit never moves. I have a I have other kits that go out that that are co- are complete set up like that. In other words, I have another set of bells and timbales and everything. So this is the practice Latin kit. In the other room, in the control room of the <laughs> studio, which is the first room you walk into, that one is a a hybrid. Uh, flamenco kid there's a cajon mm-hmm. and then uh, I'll show you later another couple drums and, and other little piccolo toms by DW and that one's specifically for flamenco mm-hmm. slash whatever it could be and that kit never moves either and that's just a practice one so yeah. when I want to 
take something like that out, I have a, a complete different rig that'll go out and look pretty much just like that one. Mm-hmm. Like even through the sizes, the, the bells, symbols, these symbols never leave either. Then in the drum room, the drum room. The, Every room. where 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 that, that yeah <laughs> that's that there's three kits there for recording mm-hmm. uh, any one of these can be recorded also but the two out of the three in the drum room are actually mic'd with their own mics and their own mic pre's so like if say if tanya came over and she wanted to track a tune which we're, we're gonna start doing i think hopefully because i love the way she plays and Hope that she loves the way I play. Absolutely, you'll be on all my records. Excellent. Yay. <laughs> and um, say if she wanted to track a tune, I, I there's two completely different kits that, like I said, have their own mics and mic pre's. Uh, they sound different. They feel different. They're about two different things. So one is uh, an old vintage uh, 70s kit, a Rogers kit, that's tuned up for j- jazz. And the kick drum as well. There's nothing inside. There's two heads, but it's a 20-inch kick with older dryer cymbals, like big 17-inch, but really warm, beautiful hats that mm-hmm. that Sabian made for me. So they're not, um, they don't get in the way of stuff. So you actually can play jazz on them. Mm-hmm. And then it's got large diaphragm overheads to get an older, wider kind of sound, as opposed to the pencils, mics that are getting more of a sparkly cymbal sound it's amazing that obviously you've got every different type of drum every type of cymbal for the different styles of music that you play tell us about when you started playing drums or what style of music that you were attracted to well ever ever since i can remember dreaming or breathing um i wanted to play drums right yeah my father was a drummer in the 30s 40s and 50s before I was born, obviously, here in LA. We used to bounce a little bit over to New York because Glenn Miller, you know, the big artist, had had heard his, uh, one of his bands here because my dad was a band leader as well. And he's in a lot of old movies, like say, Elvis Presley in Acapulco, and and actually older movies in that where you see a a club scene with Elvis, for example, and then my father would be almost right next to him, right behind him playing timbales, or like, faking it for the tracks. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of times when in old movies when they needed Latin musicians, my father got the call to either do it or to contract it and, and be in it as well. So he was well entrenched in in certain scenes that were going on here. And then Glenn Miller saw his one of his rumba bands once, or rumba bands, and, and asked uh, him if he would open up for it or not open up for him, but back then, like Glenn Miller, say artists like that, they played music for people to dance to. Mm-hmm. It wasn't so much as, oh, you just went and listened at a concert. You went and danced. So he would play the Hollywood Palladium, which is still here on Sunset Boulevard off of Vine. And Glenn Miller would play the whole night, but on the breaks, my father would play with his band in another room. So the big ballroom had Glenn Miller, and then the second room, which was kind of typical during those years, would have another band, and oftentimes a different type of band, but still a mini orchestra compared to the orchestra that Glenn Miller had. There could be 10 to 15 guys as opposed to Glenn Miller, I think, was running 20 guys, and maybe with singers it could be more. Mm-hmm. And uh, So there was this whole 
pass that my dad had, but he got a massive stroke when I was three or four years old. So I could, he couldn't play anymore. He was right-handed like I am, the right side of his body like went out. So here I was four years old. My younger brother was two and my dad was like even younger because he, my mom had to teach him everything for almost a year, I think eight months to a year. She shaved him, bathed him, fed him, taught him to speak again while she was taking care of my brother and I. Now, and so when he came out of it, uh, I grew up like just, my father was cool, but he couldn't play. I, I didn't know him as the drummer, in other words, that he was. And, and there were a lot of things, I guess, that were, that were a little bit missing. And then he didn't, he, he was normal for the most part. My mom said, oh, he's, he's the same as he was before, only he just forgot certain things. And, uh, and my mother was a big singer in Latin America, which is how they met. But I mean huge, huge, in the 30s and 40s, and going into the 50s. She was based out of Mexico City, and she was probably the singer that most significantly put the bolero, which is the equivalent of a ballad, right? And they would have strings and all this shit. And it was really beautiful, the bolero. That's that comes from Mexico. A lot of people don't realize that the bolero is a Mexican. Mexico's gift to the world is a bolero. Mm. And uh, she was a bolero artist and kind of put bolero on the map outside of Mexico, around the world. But she used to tour a lot. Or, and back then they would do residencies, like she'd go and do a, a casino in Havana, Cuba before the revolution for like, uh, two, three months or six months at a time. Mm -hmm. And then she would do the same in the casinos off the coast of Brazil. Uh, they had casinos there back then too. So she got to know the Cuban experience of music, uh, the Brazilian experience. And uh, then she would go also to Argentina. That was a big center, Buenos Aires, for radio, uh, like badass radio. Mm -hmm with artists and stuff, they were like kind of ahead of their time because they're so European influenced mm -hmm. over there still to this day. Right. So my mom juggled those three points of interest uh, and as well as singing in Mexico City. And uh, and that's kind of how, that that was what, what started me off, but they always played really cool music. It, it could be anything from Cuban stuff to straight ahead old Brazilian stuff. They had records at one time when, when I was one or two, three years old for a couple of years, maybe till I was five or something, I can't remember. He had a little record store with one of his sisters, like in, in the barrio, in the barrio where I was raised, Boyle Heights, which is part of East LA. It's on the east side of LA. It was all gang infested back then, but it was a killer place to grow up because music was all like not just what my parents were playing, which was basically everything. And then I was raised listening at the same time as a child, listening to the Beatles, which was my first love in terms of rock music, if you want to call it rock, mm -hmm. and then Zeppelin and all the other bands and Hendrix. And, and it was a really cool time for music because the DJs would, would say, oh man, I just went and saw, meaning the DJs, not guys that spin records, guys that are, are 
that you tuned into their show every day or once a week or whatever on the radio. And, and they would be out in the streets whenever they weren't on the radio with you and they would find out who like was who and then they'd go and spin their stuff. So they'd say, man, there's a great new band. You gotta go check them out. They're gonna be huge. They're called The Doors or whoever it may have been. Um, so I was raised with that, listening to that. I still love that kind of rock because I think it was more pure back then. There wasn't anything about, well, I'm just gonna dress in black and I'm gonna paint everything in black and my eyes in black and I'm gonna go and sing songs in black, I guess. <laughs> it, it, there was, it was wide open. Nobody really wore black. It was like, <laughs> Hendrix was like More always- colorful era. <laughs> yeah, right? Purple, paisley colors, yellow, green, all kinds of shit, pink. <laughs> and every artist was a, that way, but they, their music, every, everybody sounded different because there were no categories. Mm -hmm. So while I was growing up with music, to get back to that, my father had this massive stroke suit because so he couldn't, I couldn't learn drums from him. Mm -hmm. And then my mother retired a year after I was born. So I was kind of on my own. Um, and I didn't know to what capacity they had once had a career until I was older. And I thought, oh my God, my mom is actually, she was like a bad motherfucker. Yeah, it seems <laughs> a big deal. Yeah, like, and I didn't real realize that until I got older. Her archives are, I still have to get in touch with this guy. There's a professor of ethnomusicology, I think, at UC Santa Barbara, which is only an hour and a half from here without traffic, if not less. You probably have driven it already? Yeah, without traffic, the opportunity. Yeah, <laughs> oh, without, because without, with, I guess it's longer, yeah. For five days with traffic. Five days? <laughs> That sounds about right, because it's such a beautiful drive on the way up, you yeah. make pit stops. But that university up there of Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara, has archives of my mom, meaning uh, 78s, um, interviews, photos from magazines. So I'm, at some point, I'm going to take the stuff that I have and take it to them and leave it all there so that there's that would be the place at, at, when I die or whatever that that my mom's stuff can be accessed and they'll take good care of it. You know, universities are good about stuff like that. And, uh, and so um, when I was 16, my grades were getting really messed up and I was hanging out with the wrong guys in the streets. And, and my mom told my dad, we're gonna, we might lose him. We should like maybe get him this drum set he's been bitching about, so. They got me that Slinger kit, Slingerling kit that's in the drum room right, yeah. that looks tribal. And I fell in love with it because I had seen it before. My dad, since I can remember, he would carry me into Pro Drum Shop here in LA, which is still there. You should go or I'll take you. Yeah. It's super cool. The two brothers that own it, uh, their father, Bob Yeager, who's been dead for years, used to sell merchandise to drummers like my father. So I grew up knowing knowing. Bob Yeager, when my dad died, I still went there to buy, my dad died in high school, there to buy stuff. And to this day, one of the brothers, one of the sons of Bob Yeager, like remembers the kit. He says, yeah, you were 16, you came in with your dad and you got that, that god awful looking Slingerland kit with a, it was called an Aztec finish. But you know, I'm, my ancestor, my ethnic background is that of Mexican Indians, so I was real attracted to that look, and it was really different. And so I, I loved the sparkle look of Ludwig kits or, 
Rogers kits or all this stuff or clear kits. But I, I wanted, I always tried to be, to do something different with what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So all the other drummers were using large toms, like, like what is still used for rock. The first time tom up on top is never anything smaller than a 12 inch for rock. And it's, and it's really 13 and 14s, which they put up there. I, I like, I went the other way and I said, okay, I'll start with an eight and then a 10 and the 12, instead of being the first one up, will be my first floor. And then I'll use right. a 14 as a second floor. Because I thought the frequencies of higher drums would translate in a different way in, in, in when you're playing with a band. There's all, if like say if you have guitars and bass, there's already a lot of lows and mids to lows that mm -hmm. are covering um, the frequencies of a tune if you're mixing it or you're playing live or whatever. And if you choose bigger drums, 24, 26 inch kick drums and big toms, well then it's gonna, those, the sound of those drums are gonna sit in, in down there as well. Mm -hmm. And then they're gonna get lost half the time because we're not always right in ideal situations. We go do a gig and oftentimes it's like, we don't even have time to do a sound check. We're hitting because there's other bands before us or whatever. And then when you do do a, play a, a proper venue and you're only playing by yourself there, you, you're, you're at the mercy of the sound guys who are oftentimes not very good. Mm -hmm. So I thought of music that way. And uh, so on my 16th birthday, they gave me the kit. And by 17, I was playing with top 40 bands. And back then there was a, in the 70s, there was a lot of work, like a lot of work. Uh, I, I worked nonstop uh, through those years and, and it never stopped because every hotel had a, had a band in their lobby or in the bar of their lobby playing or a trio. Mm -hmm. um, and, and every wedding hired a live band um, every, there was just, every club had a live band. Every after hours club had another live band that would come in after the other band came in. So sometimes on a Saturday I could do three hits and each one was a four hour hit. So I'd do an afternoon wedding, like from 12 to four or five, do a, a dance at a, at a high school, playing all the hits. The wedding, we'd play some Latin stuff, some salsa, cause in, in where I grew up was predominantly Mexican or Mexican-American like myself. But we, we love salsa, Cuban stuff as well, and some cumbias, uh, which are from another part of Latin America, from Colombia. And, and we would mix that in. So we do that in the afternoon, do the top 40 shit at night with a mixture of other stuff. And then at 1, 12, 1 or 2 in the morning, we'd start an after-hour gig that would go till 4, 5, or 6 in the morning. Three three gigs, like, so we were like, we were pumping, man. Yeah. And everything's two and four, except for the Latin stuff. Mm -hmm. And and so there was like, it was really good uh, for me that I came from that point of view. Mm -hmm. Be because then it's it became easy for me to play with a click once I started. Mm -hmm. I went to, uh, as a music major to a, a college here in Hollywood. LA City College. I, I had actually gone to East LA College first and then transferred over. But it, the world was becoming metronome oriented. Started in the set in late seventies, and and so those of us that started doing studio work, in like uh, 
which I started doing in the in the early '80s, like '80, 80, '81, '82, '83, where things started rolling. Then everything was like on click tracks by then, and some bands would say, "No, let's not run a click. Let's just track it live," and that was cool because some of us had really good time because of our background. Mm-hmm. Some guys did the the rock approach, and and came up from there. You know, certain drummers that I enjoy listening to, and uh, but from where I came from with this whole mixture of Latin and Cuban and Brazilian stuff in the kit, and it kind of helped things out because then I, uh, you, you know, I may not have the fastest hands in the world, but I have a decent amount of technique that I'm used for. But um, I don't, I don't sound like anybody, which kind of helps. Has always helped. Sometimes it gets in the way because people think, oh no, well he's he's Joey Heredia, or he he won't do the gig because he he'll either want too much money or <laughs> or he doesn't know how to play rock or whatever. Yet I've recorded for Roger Waters and 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 uh, I yeah, I toured with Nuno Betancourt and and so there's there's certain selected rock things that I uh, I let into my life, provided they're not trying to sound like everybody else, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's all good, man. It's super interesting. Let me throw some names of, of, of drummers at you and just get your thoughts. On. Drummers that I yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna give you some names and just tell me what you think. Um, Ginger Baker, what, what's your thoughts? On... Yeah, it wasn't an influence on me. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of name drummers, a lot of name drummers that did not influence me at all. Mm-hmm. I I can't name out one tune that they played on, say from my memory bank in my head. Yet there's other guys that are more obscure guys like, like Mike Clark, mm-hmm. that most people don't know of. That was one of my top three influences. He played drums on the the classic record by Herbie Hancock called uh, Thrust, mm-hmm. and there was a tune on there called Actual Proof. I love that yeah, and Actual oh. Proof actually, yeah, you've heard yeah, it, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, you know, it wasn't actually supposed to be on that record. <laughs> the producer whose name escapes me right now. He was like, they chose tunes and there's like a classic, another classic of Herbie Hancock's called Butterfly. It's on that same record. And and uh, um, they, ha- they had already done all the tunes for the record and they were finishing up the last day. And the guy, the band guy said, hey, uh, you know, Herbie and Mike Clark, and I think it was Paul Jackson. Yeah, Jackson. Mm-hmm. Was that actual proof? I think so, yeah. And Benny Maupin on... Uh, sax and stuff and and they uh they said hey can we do this tune and the producer was like no we already got in the can and they all come on man you know let us just we'll just do it once we'll we'll just do one take and uh if you don't dig it it's fine you can throw it away or whatever just Hmm. can can we just pump it out and i think they may not have even had had run it more than a couple of times and so i have to check with mike clark it's a friend of mine now, by then, Mike Clark and I think Herbie as well were or already had turned to Buddhism. So they, Mike Clark goes to another room and does some chanting and shit <laughs> in the studio and then comes back right away when he's done and says, okay, let's, like, Ready to go. <laughs> let's do it. And then they cut that version that's a classic now. But the thing about it is, 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 is by itself, it's a, it's a genre of music. By itself, it's a concept. Of music, it's not just a song on a on an album, it and and so that that's kind of why I was influenced so much, and it was funk, 
but it wasn't funk. It was also jazz, but it wasn't that either. The only way I could describe it is it was straight ahead funk as opposed to straight ahead jazz. So it, was, it, it wasn't up and down two and four, and it, it wasn't normal funk. You know, you have to hear, but yet that type of vibe now years, years later has influenced me and a lot of guys that did certain things on certain records throughout our career where people say, oh, that was killer. And I say, well, thanks to Mike Clark, um, it w turned out to be killer. Mm -hmm. and, and so that tune when I was like 18 or 19, 19 I think, I met Billy Childs, who's a famous uh, jazz pianist and composer and arranger. And he won several Grammys. He just won another one. And he's got all these different projects as the projects that he does. But back then he was playing with Freddie Hubbard, who happened to be the best jazz trumpet player at the time. Um, you know, it was always Miles and Freddie Hubbard, but Freddie had more technique than Woody Shaw or any of these guys. And he was just amazingly bad. I ended up working with him after for a minute, some gigs, because Billy got me on it. But Billy was going to USC at the same time, getting his degree in orchestration and then playing with Freddie Hubbard. And I used to just try to get together, like I still try to do now with, with different people. Hey, let's play. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, see what happens, right? Tanya got me on a cool thing a couple of weeks ago <laughs> at the Ultimate Jam in LA, this big rock thing. She says, yeah, yeah. hey, you want to do this tune by Mother's Finest? And I'm, Old school I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and But her instigating that like opened up this door that I, I we play real well together. And I think we're going to play a lot more together, like record and do this and that and videos and whatever. And uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm 17, 18, 19. I, I think I was approaching 18 or 19 or so. And this guitar player that I was in college with says, and myself, I said, let's put a rehearsal together. And there was a trumpet player who had become my mentor because he already had a degree. He's a professor at UCLA. And I met him when I was 17, when my dad died, and we were in a band together. And he kind of was a good, he's a few years older than me, he was a good guy to have around as a, as a music mentor, but at the same time, he knew my father and my dad died, and I was heartbroken. Mm -hmm. And he kind of watched me, and we went to rehearsals together, and we did everything together. So he had this house. It was all fucked up, but it was still a house that he owned in Eagle Rock, which is, was a funky area back then with gangs nearby. Now it's all cool and gentrified and all, the, all these mm. white folks are moving in and they're taking over and putting up fucking coffee shops <laughs> and all this shit. But it's, you know, it is what it is. I liked it better before, but it's okay. It, it's cool now. Because back then you could like, you could play with a fucking hard rock band in your living room or the garage till 10 or 11 at night and neighbors wouldn't say shit. That's how it was in East LA and Boyle Heights where I grew up. Now it's the white folks that moved in. No, you can't play past eight o'clock. <laughs> if that, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's so different. So we do this rehearsal there and, 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 and the guitarist says, oh, I know this bass player. His name was Billy Carroll. I'll, I'll turn you on later to some stuff that, oh, I don't know. Yeah. We did a track with an orchestra for Billy Childs many years ago. Guy couldn't read a note of music, didn't know shit about music, 
but he was one of the most talented musicians I had ever met. He passed away a year ago. The guitarist gets him to be in the band, not in the band, but to make the rehearsal. And then the guitarist asks him, by the way, do you know a good pianist? Oh, yeah, I know this pianist, Billy Childs, man. He's, he's, I'll see if he's free. He plays with Freddie Hubbard. What? He plays with Freddie Hubbard. We'll get him here. Mm -hmm. So we, he came, like, as badass as he already was, and he didn't have to go. He was still in the mood to meet new guys yeah. and play. So we're like, oh, which tune shall we do? And we're doing, you know, jazz standards. And I knew all of them already by then, besides all the top 40 stuff. And then Billy says, does anybody know actual proof? And I, guys were puzzled. And I, I said, yeah, I do. I just, I've never played it with anyone because nobody that I know knows how to play it because it's a very difficult song to play. It's in 4-4. Four, four, but if you ever check it out, you think there's some odd bars here and there, and, and there really isn't. But it's, it's once you start getting into the piano player soloing, and it's meant to be a trio tune, not with guitar, not horns. That always fucks it up. It was meant to be just a piano trio. But uh, for everybody out there that wants to check it out that hasn't checked out, actual proof on the Thrust record by Herbie Hancock, this early 70s album or CD if you want to get the CD. And, and from there, that my, I developed a relationship with Billy Childs. Uh, so started working with him there, a band, and with a singer who's now the most, the best female jazz singer in the world is a, a black woman named uh, Diane Reeves. And we all started playing together back then. And, and for those few years, we had a band together, Billy Childs. It was called Night Flight. And it was, Diane was singing and, and it was very super adventurous. And Diane could handle anything by then. And we were all kids. I was 19 or 20 and the rest, Billy was 24, 23, 24, Diane 24. And we kind of grew up there for a minute, playing together until Diane went on her own. And, and that band and playing with Billy opened up me because we would play every Saturday at a jazz club that no longer exists in Venice Beach on Abbott Kinney, which is the center of, of again, the whole gentrified scene. Because back then, all uh, that whole Venice Beach scene was nothing about more than just drugs and and prostitutes and just everything you could get your hands on. It was really cool. <laughs> Back, I didn't do any of that. I always stayed clear of that. I never did drugs and I don't even drink now. But, um, but all these bands started hearing me and musicians and artists and they said, oh, this kid can read because I was going to, to college for a couple of years as a music major and I took a ton of big bands. I was going to different big band in different colleges. So like five, four or five colleges with five big bands at one time. One big band would meet Monday night. Another big band would meet Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in the morning. Another one would meet Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in the afternoon at another school. Then another school Tuesday and Thursday yeah. in the first part of the day and another school again, you know, Tuesday and Thursday in the afternoon. So every day I'm reading two to three big bands every day, different ones. And these directors would just pull charts out. Hey, okay, let's go through them. Wouldn't even work on them much. They would just say, just to keep our reading sharp. So I came out being able to read, being able to play Cuban shit, mm -hmm. Brazilian shit, all the funk, the rock stuff, the top 40 stuff. So there wasn't anything that I didn't play. And I started getting a lot of work right away. So in my 20s, I slammed one credit after another. I was juggling 
all these people, you know, from recording with Stevie Wonder one day and then go out with Manhattan Transfer the next day and then, and bam, bam, bam. And these bands I grew up playing in, top 40 bands were all horn-based, uh, meaning like three to five guys in the horn section. So it's Tower Power-ish, Grand Central Station, mm -hmm. that kind of vibe, very aggressive. And we do the top 40 stuff as well. And then, uh, so like, you know, sometimes I get called by Tower Power to go uh, uh, sub for David Garibaldi, who I grew up listening to, like to this day, which is kind of fun, you know, because, you know, life gets better for me because I get to play with some of the groups that I actually grew up uh, listening to, you know, which is really, really, really cool. Dream. I'm sure there's not many people that can fill that gig. <laughs> Tower, Power. Tower Power one. It's a tough gig. And they don't rehearse, you know. No. Joey can, uh, uh, David Garibaldi's picking up a, 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 uh, an award, some fucking city, who knows where, for, you know, his drubbing, you know. And he deserves all these awards, you know, like Lifetime Achievement Drumming Award or this yeah. or that. Yeah. And he's he's going to miss like three, four gigs or something in Europe, man. Can you do them? Oh, well, yeah. Okay, we'll fly you into Berlin or wherever I'm flying into, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, and they'll send me whatever they have ahead of time. Well, they'll send me like these live CDs, but, you know, they're not always easy to listen to because they're right off the board. And, you know, that wasn't like the... The, who, who they just ran a deck and said, okay, we're just going to cut. They're doing the front of the house and then they just run a deck. So it, it doesn't sound, the quality's not very good. There's there's some charts, there's some lead sheets and then there's some trumpet charts and then they just send me all of that. And then I have to try to suss it out and and doctor up the charts because with my schedule, I don't, I can't possibly remember everybody's shit. So I try to, you know, write whatever I can out or have one of my students transcribe stuff for me because I have a couple of really cool students. And they'll, and I'm not good at transcribing. I hate transcribing stuff. I never did it because I didn't want to sound like anybody. So I always mm -hmm. went away and then now, but when you have to, you know, do that and it's like complicated shit, it's, it, I can do it, but I, I hate doing it. So, you know, when I go out with Tower World, like they'll fly me to wherever I'm going and I'll just meet the guys and then we'll do a sound check. And whatever time we have, we'll run over what we have or some sticky things. And it's a lot of sticky shit because, <laughs> you know, they'll have medleys of stuff that are, is not on records. And they'll change arrangements that are not on records because they're live arrangements. And they'll do things like where one guy in the middle of a, at the end of a song will say, you know, and now ladies and gentlemen, you know, I have to set yeah, up yeah. like these kicks. It's not yeah. songs and it's, but I have to have all that shit written. And so it's a very uh, nerve wracking gig. <laughs> if you don't do it like yeah. two weeks to a month straight every night, so you can develop some kind of a vibe and you're just going and covering one gig or mm -hmm. two or three gigs. It's like, ah, oh, man. But I, I ended up playing it with, with Rocco. And and growing up as a drummer, I wanted to play with, there were two bass players I wanted to play with. Well, there were several, but the two main guys were was Jaco Pastorius and, and Rocco. Masters of the 16th notes. Huh? Masters of the 16th notes. Man, they really were. Incredible. And the thing is, is I, have, I, I, I did half a set at the Baked Potato with Jaco in the 80s. Oh, I was playing with, 
with the, that this well-known jazz guitarist, Phil Upchurch was his name, still alive. And I had a gig with him at the Baked. I can't remember who was playing bass. And before the end of the first set, Jaco comes in and nobody really recognizes him. He looks like he just got off some swing shift gig at General Motors or some shit. <laughs> like, you know, he just looked like a regular guy that just got off work. And then, uh, and then Phil said, oh, Jaco's here. I said, what? Like fucking Jaco Pastoris? Are you kidding? So we went to the bar. I met him. We talked and he, he invited Jaco to sit in. Jaco didn't have his bass. And he, this was a couple of months after he was recovering from that mm -hmm. fall he had off a balcony yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. where he snapped a wrist and I think a collarbone or mm -hmm. shoulder and a rib or two. Mm -hmm. So he was recuperating from that. So he wasn't in tip top shape, but he, you know, he was cool trying to get it together. I don't think he was playing much yet, but he was like, yeah, I'll play. So he played on this other guy's bass and it's, fucking sounded like Jaco. He didn't have his rig. It wasn't a fretless face, but it still sounded and felt like him. And he was right up on my hi-hat, right on. Oh my you know? God. And I, and I had such a great time and he did most of the set, if not the whole set. And, um, and so that was a big moment for, for me because uh, he was one of my biggest influences oh, yeah. um, as a musician. Uh, Jaco was in the top three guys or something in my life. And, uh, and I used to go see him all the time. I, I, I went and saw the 830 tour that's a famous two CD set or two record set that Weather Report did mm. in the late 70s or 1980. Right. Who's that? Was it Peter Erskine? Did Peter Erskine, Jaco, yeah. mm -hmm. Wayne Shorter, Zawinul, and that black guy in percussion. I can't remember his name. They had a couple different black guys. But at that time, they had this, this cool guy who just knew how to fit in and... Mm -hmm. And it was spectacular. It's like the baddest shit I ever saw in my life. This concert hall in Santa Monica called the Santa Monica Civic. And um, so I had or already seen him live and used to go see him live when he would come with his word of mouth big band or whatever, you know. And, 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 and so playing with Tower, I was like, who's going to do it? Oh, Rocco's going to do it. And I already knew Rocco for years. And we had always toyed with the idea of playing together because he at NAM shows he when he would come and even whether he was playing or not if he got you know because he's he's got all these endorsement companies that would not oh, we'll fly you over to LA and, and he and he was living in and and in Vegas at the time so it was easy for him to come over he could just drive over they'd put him up in a hotel but he'd come and see me play with my trio that I've had for 25 years with Marco Mendoza who's a famous Another incredible bass player oh you heard it yeah yeah Marco's amazing yeah, he really. The baked potato. The baked potato, yeah. He's a one of a kind kind of guy. He really is. <laughs> um, plays a six string fretless with our. He doesn't do that with the rock bands. He's a big rock star. He plays with the Dead Daisies right now. He played with White Snake, Blue Murder, Thin Lizzy, on and on and on and on. But when we play, he plays a six string fretless, but in in tune. In tune, and he's so musical, it's incredible. Yeah, and he and scats his solos. Yeah. He's singing what he's playing at the same time, and and he's not a legit, legitimately trained bass player. He's a very kind of like on the moment, and 
learned shit on the street like I did for the most part. And then we went, I went to school after, but he never went to school. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but he, he grew up in the same era that I did. He's a little older than me. Um, but the era meaning where there was a lot of work mm-hmm. and a lot of different kind of, and everything was like, okay, you got to learn loads of standards, meaning jazz standards, loads of top 40 tunes, rock tunes, and he he went to Vegas, and he was doing the same thing, three hits a day, sometimes. I your chops are so tight. <laughs> yeah, he would do like you know a four or five hour hit in the afternoon in 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 one casino in the lobby or the bar, and then he'd run to another casino and then do another hit from six seven o'clock to midnight, and then do an after ones in another casino from one to six in the morning. So he got into a lot doing a lot of blow. And he turned into a heroin addict after that, and he almost died. Like, he should have been dead. I didn't know him yet, but he was running hard in Vegas. He ran things there. You know, he was like the mayor, the undisputed, <laughs> the mayor. like, mayor of, of the wrong side of the street over there. But, but he, he, this spectacular player came out of that, all those dynamics put together, including being a heroin addict. And and uh, so we had that trio, and we have a CD. Uh, it's called Live in L.A. The, if I have an extra one, I'll throw it at you before you leave. And it's just live. We we track two days, two nights in a row with a live audience. And, we, and there's no sequences, no loops, no computers. It was 20 years ago or so, so there weren't really any. Computers, we did it on ADATs, my ADATs that we took in from my studio. Before there were computers, I was running ADATs, doing all this shit. And, uh, and, and, and we tracked it there without an, no overdubs. It's just what you hear is what it is. And people flip out. We put that in the CD and the liner notes. Like, there's, it's, it's exactly what the, these three guys sound like. And, and Tanya heard it recently at the baked potato that's our new little place to play and we yeah. play there once in a while when marco's in town mm-hmm. and uh it's and, face melting so huh it's face melting that's how i describe it face melting <laughs> i've never heard that never in my life that before oh, no yeah. is, is that is that like, let me tur- turn the the, the, the uh, Air conditioner. Uh, you have to explain that. Yeah, as, as you do that, I'm going to explain exactly what face melting is, and I'll tell you a story about it. <laughs> face melting is when someone's playing something so either so good or it's such a, a, a volume or just such an impact where one would joke that their face was melting or is melting as a result. Now, is that an Irish or an English or I think it a, from a, that part of the world I term? Because I've, I, you know, I'm pretty well traveled and I've never heard I that in my UK, life. But this is a, this is the truth, right? Haven't been to to Scotland or Ireland yet, but I've been to England many times. Come, come to Scotland, I'll show you around. Okay, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a bit. But as far as face melting goes, this is a true story. I was doing a session one time where it was a a, a reading gig. So I'm looking at my score and the, the bass player pointed out and says, look, and this is in the middle of the, the gig. And then it sh- showed me the guitar player score, which is next to him, they showed it to me. And it said in the little notes below, please at this point, face melting solo. That was the direction. And one of the it scores- said it on, on, on the, the chart? chart? It was written on the chart, God's honest truth. 
<laughs> Ross McAndrew. Okay. That's fucking killer. Ross McAndrew, bass player. Do you remember that? Please comment below on Facebook right now and tell me if you remember that. It was in uh, it was funny. a college production or something. So there you go. Please melt some faces with your solo. Face melting. It may have may yeah. even been Scott Rafferty. It's I can't quite remember. We'll sort it out. Brilliant. You can have it. Go forth and use it. Use That's it. brilliant. No, because there's 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 one that I use that I that I that I. I stole part of it from Apocalypse Now, that movie with Brand Marlon Brando. You ever seen it? I have the director's cut. You sh we should watch it. It's 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 a classic mm -hmm. of all time of movie making. Martin Scorsese, right? Mm -hmm. Like that. That's it's the first war movie to come out when it came out, which was a long time ago, to show war really ugly as opposed to always oh, get John Wayne and go kill everybody or kill fucking Indians or kill Japs or kill fucking Germans or and wipe out, you know, women and kids at the same time. But it's a, anyway, there's this there's this this whole thing that at the end, near the end, where Marlon Brando's talking to a guy who was sent to assassinate him because he's lost his mind. He's a commander. But he went deep into Cambodia and Laos, you know, the neighboring countries to Vietnam, and he lost his mind. But he's playing God with U.S. troops who have all lost their mind, mm -hmm. and they look like, they look half like natives, and then the natives there who also lost their mind, and everyone's fucked up. And so the our army sent you know, Martin Sheen, who was a kid back then, mm -hmm. to go and kill Brando, yeah. like assassinate him. Mm -hmm. So it's a suicide mission. Right. You know, I won't tell you what happened because you got to see <laughs> no, the no, movie because no. it'll knock you out. But he's telling at one and, and Brando knows that the guy's there to kill him. But it's almost like he's interviewing him because he wants to make sure that whoever kills him, if he likes the guy, in a sense, will go back to his family and tell him them that he wasn't a bad guy after all, maybe to a certain extent. You know what I mean? Because he loved his family, but he was so disconnected and so whacked out. But it's a brilliant performance by Brando, you know, had his head shaved, he's in the dark and his caves and the other guys either tied up or they just let him in there. And, and he would talk to him, he was brilliant, right? And he said, man, he says, uh, he says, you know, once I, I had all these I had these troops and we inoculated these children so that they wouldn't, natives, so they wouldn't get these diseases. And then the Viet Cong found and they saw the markings that we had inoculated them and they cut off all the arms of the kids that we had inoculated. And he said, I, I wanted to pull my face off or something like that. And, and, and but the way he did it was so, I mean, you just were like uh, biting your tongue because it was horrible <laughs> the way he was saying it. And at the same time saying that if I had one company of men that thought that way, that did their actions without reservations and without judgments. He says, 
our troubles over here would be over very soon. Face off, face melting. Face melting, that's all one in the same. <laughs> yeah. So to this day, if like you say, Tanya, fuck, man, I wanted to pull my face off. You were so badass. And that's my line for years, and some people know that. So now we can juggle face each other. Yeah, I'm going to use that one. Sorry I had to talk so long about why. No, it was all good. It was all good. Joey, absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting us around to your crib. Um, next time, we watch a pop, a pop, Apocalypse Now. <laughs> tongue tied there uh, and uh, we we do drums and we film it and have a great time thank you very much for being on the podcast excellent thank you for having me There you have it, cracking interview there with Joey and of course uh, big up to Tanya as well. As I said at the top of the podcast, she organised it all, introduced me to Joey. Um, so yeah, all good. Uh, if you get the chance to check out the trailer for the Katie Tunstall podcast on YouTube, it's been doing the rounds the last two or three days, um, just type in Scott Cowie or go to scottcowie.com, it's there now. Um, every time I'm in America, I do a video series of the podcast. I do some audio ones as well, like this one that we did with Joey. And of course, there's one with uh, Katie and there's one with Kyle Gas coming up as well. Uh, so keep checking scottcowie.com for all the different updates. Um, when I was in Los Angeles, we recorded an album as well with Sandy Tom. Um, so uh, keep checking back on my website for updates with that. I've got a couple other gigs coming up too, so it's all good. It's all ticking over. It's all going well. Um, a bunch of new podcasts, audio podcasts coming up, which I'm really, really excited about. So keep checking that. Big thanks to Ron, as usual, who produced this. Thanks to everybody, as I'm, I'm back from Los Angeles now. Um, I had a great time there, and I want to thank everybody that helped me out. Everybody from Mike Smith, Tanya, Sandy, everyone really, Gemma, a whole bunch of people. The man that was on this podcast, of course, Joey. Um, I had a great time there, um, and look once again at scottcowie.com for content continued updates from that trip it's all coming thick and fast we've been editing like crazy the video series um like i said bunch of new podcasts audio podcasts coming up it's all good keep checking scottcowie.com for that and we will see you guys next week